Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 83 of Left of Skeptic. My name is Brittany Lind. And I am Kayla Moria. Guess I'm who's back? Back, back, back again. again. Kayla's, Kayla's back. Tell a friend. Guess it, who's back? Tell, Guess tell who's your friends. Back. Tell your friends Guess to listen to this podcast. Back. Guess who's back again? <laughs> but seriously, tell your friends to listen to this podcast. <laughs> Uh, we're a paranormal podcast. Yes, we are. Kayla, how are you? We haven't seen you in forever. Or still now we can't see you, but <laughs> I can. Uh, I am good. Uh, got a lot of work done. Nice. A lot more work than I anticipated, but mm. I, I still got a bunch done. Good. Except for this weekend where I went to Illinois uh-huh. to visit my auntie. And nice. we went to the Renaissance Fair. <gasps> and then... Okay, and then we watched uh, the new first two episodes of the new Game of Thrones. Nice. Uh, House of the Dragon. And then we went to the cities where I got to see my Travis for a half a minute. Aww. And then Sean and I went to the state fair. That is fantastic. Also, I heard that House of Dragons is a, a rough watch, that first one. No, I loved it. <laughs> okay. A lot of people. Oh, were you talking about the brutal, the gore? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Heavy gore warnings. Yeah. I that just that stuff doesn't even phase me. No, no. A lot of people though. I was uh, I was looking at comments online, and they were like, "There should have been some sort of trigger warning for this." Yes, but it's also an HBO show right. about medieval, not medieval fantasy, medievalish like wartime. And yes, it was more brutal than Game of Thrones. Right, but. Not all that much. Dude, nobody got their thumbs like poked out with their like or their eyeballs poked out with thumbs, which is what happened in the original series. I mean, that also happened in Buffy. Yeah. You didn't. Well, yeah, you did see it a little bit. (laughs) Xander. (laughs) But yeah, as we were watching it, the episode was uh, going and then that scene happened. And then my aunt was like, I can uh, uh, we can we can pause it if because we were eating. Oh, she's like, yeah. I, she's like, I understand if you don't want to eat anymore. And both Sean and I were like, no, oh, fine. There we're are numb. There are certain things that I do not want to eat through. But for the most part, I'm pretty numb. Like, I, I can watch a lot of crime shows and be totally fine. But there are some, I can't even think of any examples. But I know there are some things I'm like, mm, I can't do that right now. The only thing I can't eat through is uh, gross humor. Things involving poop or vomit. Mm, you know what? I bet that that's that. Yep, that's I know. Much it. Yep, that's other anything else. I'm fine. Yeah. So, how are you? Uh, I'm I'm pretty good. Had a couple of couple of weeks without you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You made it. I see. Yes, I made it. Um, You're we're a strong, independent woman who don't need no man. Who don't need no man? Except Corey did help. Yeah, Corey. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I could have found someone else, but I was really excited to record with Corey, and we thank him so much. Uh, yeah, so you are, we're actually in the podcast studio together, face to face. First time ever with your setup here. Yes, and with two mics. Yeah, Because before we just did it with one and it sounded weird. (laughs) (laughs) Um, other than that, yeah, uh, a lot of things have happened over the last two weeks. I don't remember what any of them are. Uh, it was really busy, and now they're done. Yay! Yay! Um, I am excited, though, because I'm working on a couple of uh, personal things, which I can't tell you on the podcast, but uh, maybe things will be changing in my life for the better. Awesome. What does that mean? 
We Wouldn't don't know. Wouldn't you like to know? Hopefully they happen, and then you will. <laughs> if not, I'll never talk about it again, and I'll seem sad. And then it'll just be like, whoosh. Whoosh, it's gone. What did she ever reference in that episode? Nobody knows. <laughs> uh, but I am excited for you to tell me a story. I'm excited, too. I have a few things on the burner of stories, mm-hmm. but then this came up and I had and been whoosh to the side. Yep. I had been looking through our handy dandy episode list. We have a Excel document that is filled with what we've covered every episode so that we mm-hmm. don't accidentally overlap. It's becoming when we Long. first <laughs> when we first started the show we were like oh do we really need this and now as we're over a year into this we're like we absolutely need yes yes yes. there have been some times when I start research on something and then I go wait we already done this (laughs) sometimes we have sometimes I heard it on a different podcast so according to our handy dandy episode spreadsheet we have never been to West Virginia on this podcast what seriously yeah and I think it's time to remedy that, don't you? Wait, didn't I didn't I go to West Virginia last week? What did I do last week? I don't remember. It wasn't on the sheet. Where did you go last week? One second. No, I was in New Orleans. Oh, God, don't fucking scare <laughs> me like that. Oh, God. <laughs> I was like, if I did this fucking research... <laughs> I even checked your, like, pre-saves, like, I call dibs list. <laughs> Wasn't there either. I think I was originally looking up something in West Virginia because we'd never gone there. Yep. Uh, I'm sorry. Sorry <laughs> about that. Uh, enjoy a beer. Take a good calming sip. And then uh, bring me to West Virginia. In Weston, West Virginia, a long stone building stands with a tall steeple in the center. It gives that vibe of, like, gorgeous building that was once a beautiful boarding school. Or maybe a university or something like that. It's surrounded by large lawns and the grounds. They've gone into a bit of disrepair, but you can see the beauty that once was. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's abandoned. Uh, And it was never a school, which is, if I looked at it, that's what I thought it was. This building was the site of the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. What? So, it is now a well-known haunted site, but it wasn't always that way. Okay. It's kind of a story of best intentions gone horribly wrong. Aren't they always? Yep. It was constructed between 1858 and 1881 because they did a lot of big additions Mm -hmm. and add-ons. It became the largest hand-cut stone masonry building in the North America, and it is purportedly the second largest in the world next to the Kremlin. Mm. The asylum wasn't always a nightmarish facility. When <laughs> it was commissioned, its conception was viewed as one of the most hopeful developments in years. Okay. Like centuries-long years in the 1800s. Right. It was supposed to be this big move for patients with mental disorders because at that point in the 1800s they're just beginning to kind of understand this is not their fault exactly give them a safe place to live and thrive the building was the brainchild of thomas story kirkbride a well-known doctor for the mentally ill who founded what would in time become the american psychiatric association oh damn 
He what also um, he also designed it. I'm trying to think how to word this. He designed it, but it was then redesigned with an architect. How do you describe? It? Like he gave the architect the ideas of what he wanted, and oh, the architect he, he built conceptualized it. conceptualized. Thank you. So, the architect was Richard Andrews, who followed Kirkbride's plan, his conceptualization. Uh huh. Which called for long, rambling wings arranged in a staggered formation, assuring that each of the connecting structures received an abundance of therapeutic sunlight <sighs> for fresh air. Yes. He also emphasized freedom. The patients, he felt, should be allowed to move around, not be confined to their rooms, have activities, have access to the grounds as well as inside the building, mm-hmm. and find a way to like have stimulation for their mind. Yeah. Stimulation for their mind. They believed that people would get better, not worse, if they were given more control over their own lives, which at the time was radical, but I mean, now we're like fucking duh. Duh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, but no, definitely radical, way different than locking people in tiny cages or strapping them to beds for 24-7. The grounds were large and mostly self-sufficient, including a working farm, Dairy, waterworks, uh, gas well, also at a cemetery. The state of the art facility was designed to make the patients feel like it was their home. Mm, mm-hmm. Kirkbride wanted them all to feel well cared for and restored, and hopefully, eventually, be able to leave. So, like it was their home, but till they could step to a better home. Right. They were essentially uh, being re- treated. Yeah, and hopefully, there was something at the end of that treatment. Kind of like, this is kind of like what we discussed when we talked about Nopaming in episode three, too. It was meant to be its own kind of little community. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you felt like you lived in a village rather than in a hospital. Right. His ideas inspired the construction of 73 Kirkbride hospitals across the country in the second half of the 19th century, including the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. Mm-hmm. The original hospital, designed to house 250 patients, each with their own rooms for privacy and comfort, was opened in 1864. Then, in 1881, disaster struck. This is also kind of when the building stopped and the additions. Due to an increase in mental health diagnoses and the stigma that still surrounded the various conditions, despite people like Kirkbride's attempts to... Destigmatize it? Yep. Yeah. The Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum found its facilities overrun, housing almost 500 more patients than they ever imagined. Whoa. Does that, uh, do they increase, like, how many people are in rooms then? They'd have to. Yeah. Yeah. The hospital couldn't keep up. Conditions began to decline dramatically. Patients were crammed together with sometimes four or five in a room intended for one. No. No. The farm and dairy on the compound, originally designed to provide for 300, the the patients plus the staff, were unable to meet the increased demand that came with overcrowding, and patients began to suffer from malnutrition, which then exacerbated their health issues. Yep. By 1938, the facility was at six times its maximum, maximum intended capacity. That's insane. I bet, was it Kirkbride? Yeah. I bet he was just rolling in his grave if he was still alive. I, I don't and know. It, it gets worse because oh, at its peak in the 1950s, 
It held 2,400 patients in overcrowded and shitty conditions. And it was supposed to be 250. 250. Dude. Dude. So 10 times the amount of patients it was supposed to have. Dude. To expose the terrible conditions in the facility, the Charleston Gazette tried to send in a crew to investigate their inner workings of the Mm -hmm. asylum, and they did have some success. They were able to get people in there, and what they found shocked them. There were patients sleeping on the floor and in freezing rooms due to a lack of furniture and a lack of heat. Okay. The overcrowding had resulted in overworked staff and a decreased emphasis on sanitation. Yeah. The once bright, clear windows that were meant to give everybody all this sunlight and to be open for fresh air were covered in dirt and grease and grime, which caused these long hallways to go from bright and gorgeous to dark and dreary, and also didn't allow the sunlight to come in to additionally heat the room. Oh, right. Yeah. The wallpaper was peeling from decay, and where it hadn't disintegrated on its own, the patients had torn it off. Yep. Worse still was the conditions for the patients themselves. Those whom orderlies deemed unable to be controlled had been locked in cages, in open spaces, (sighs) in an attempt to make more bedrooms available for less troublesome, like, inhabitants. Which... Awful. But at at a certain point, if you're an orderly and if you're like one to 30 patients, what are you supposed to do with the folks who are unable to be controlled? Like they're a safety risk for literally everyone. Problems all around. Like it's not just, it's easy to say, oh, they should have done better. But if these conditions are hurting themselves or hurting the orderlies, then it would go to say that they are potentially hurting the other patients who are also not at fault. And it's just terrible all around. Terrible all around. And in addition to the uh, fun conditions and everything else, we have the addition of Walter Freeman. Do you remember that name? I do remember that name, but I don't remember why. This place became a training ground for experimental (gasps) lobotomies. I remember now. (laughs) Walter Freeman, who we've discussed in the past was a famous surgeon and lobotomy advocate. And in like the course of his lifetime, they believe they said he performed something like 4,000 lobotomies. Yeah. Um, he's the one that developed the ice pick method that so many people talk about, especially in like horror movies now, because it's that insane. Yes. His time there is believed to ended in a lot of patient deaths, which are we surprised? No, absolutely. No, not. we're not. While some people eventually left the asylum under their own power, many died there. The staff notified next of kin when a patient passed away, but in many cases, families either weren't able to be found or just didn't show up to claim the bodies. Not surprised. Patients who were not claimed by their families were assigned a number, buried in the cemetery, and then issued a simple gravestone reflecting only their number. Let me guess, those records are missing. Over time, many of the gravestones were removed or repurposed. Just cross out the old number, put a new one? Apparently. Today, there is virtually no way to identify the bodies buried at the asylum. Patients were always buried. They were never cremated. It would take a lot of manpower to try and 
use DNA to decipher who is who in that. Oh, yeah. Oof. After the Gazette published that expose on everything going on, yeah, it spurred this big movement to close down the hospital. They, yeah. wanted, they wanted it done. Changes in the treatment of mental illness and the physical deterioration of the facility also spurred this on. And it did eventually get forced into closure, but not until 1994. No, no. Places like these, they always closed in the 90s. And I'm like, there's no way. I was alive Dear, in 1994. I, that's my literally my next note. Dear listeners, if you want some perspective, because I think it that we like to think these occurrences as happening so long ago. I was six years old when this facility closed. I was eight. My little sister was already born. I am only 34 years old. Yeah. This is recent. This is bullshit is what that is. Also, they didn't necessarily need to close it. They just needed to reduce the amount of people who were there. By the time it was done, they needed to close it. There was no way around it. But And part of me wonders because there's also, not to get into too deep of a discussion about this, but for people who do need assistance because of mental health issues, right? a lot of facilities that were state-run just closed down, and a lot of people say it's just because of the conditions, but part of it is because you know that the government just didn't want to pay for it anymore. Yeah. But that's a whole other conversation. Or the neighborhoods or the rallied ne- against it, and they're yep. like, no, we don't want this here. Bringing down our property values. Now the once ornate building intended for healing, which it started with and then fucked right off with that one, uh, sits abandoned as if the patient simply vanished into thin air. Rooms are still filled with medical equipment and old worn down furniture. Uh, There's wheelchairs in the hallway. It's exactly, it looks like a horror movie. And apparently... On top of all this other stuff left around, some spirits hang around as well. Rebecca Jordan, who is the operations manager of the asylum, told the local CBS Channel 13 News in 2019, we have seven to eight resident patients who still reside here. Rebecca's family bought the property in 2007. I forgot to write it down, but it was somewhere around there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And she says it didn't take long before the asylum's paranormal patients dropped in and were like, hey, hi, thought we were gone. We're not gone. (laughs) Jordan said, one laid his hand on my shoulder and squeezed. I was scared to death. The group in front of me was asking what happened, and that was the last year I worked in the haunted house. Because now they have a haunted house in there. Of course they do. You know what makes for a really cheap Haunted house renovation. When it already looks like that. And real ghosts. And real ghosts. Exactly. Understanding what they went through makes it easier for you to communicate, said Jordan. Basically, when they run these tours, she explains a lot of the background to try to help people be able to communicate more easily and to not offend the spirits there. Yeah. Some of the ghosts include the spirits of two teen boys from the 1940s that are rumored to still linger in a bathroom. To appease them, you could give them a gift of cigarettes, mint, or gum. Hilarious. What are they doing with the straight-up mint, though? Are they just chewing it like gum, or are they making tea? Well, mints. Like, a mince. Like, like, I was thinking of a sprig like of mint. Okay. They could be using the mints 
with the cigarettes because that's what some people I knew used to do when they wanted to smoke a menthol but didn't have a menthol. They'd have a mint and then smoke a cigarette. Interesting. It doesn't work. I didn't think so. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, There's Jacob, who is uh, not quite ready for last call. Jordan says that the first time he was ever seen or talked to was during a filming of the 2008 Ghost Hunters show. Oh. And he was said that they said he was looking for his beer. Uh, okay. And so 3 years later later Rebecca had received a gift including patient admission forms from 1890 to 1892. Somebody was like, "Oh, hey, look what I Shit. got." What? Oh, they just took those home? <laughs> Well, I imagine they probably dug them up in archives or something. Okay. Um, they didn't specify that. But while she was pouring through them, one name stood out. Jacob Ayers. So it matched the name he was given. Mm-hmm. And she said that she saw that he was admitted, that he was an alcoholic, that the alcoholism had made him delusional, and that he thought that everyone, orderlies and everybody, was hiding his beer. So literally... There's this oh. paperwork of a Jacob from 1892 doing what this the Ghost Hunters show said that they was doing. At first I was like, oh, is that really a, something that happens when you're an oh, alcoholic? Yeah, it and is. And then I was think, also thinking back to like the 1800s and how uh, not standardized the alcohol would have been then, including like moonshine and stuff like that, which oh, can it, be straight up poison if you don't do it right. Oh, but it... It still happens. Huh. It's it's like, if you're a bad enough alcoholic, you can have delusions. Like, And uh, it starts out as memory things, but it can eventually move to like kind of like dementia. Shit. Some other ghosts that are known to the staff include Lily, a playful child believed to have spent her entire life at the hospital. She is known for her laughter and interest in playing games. Mm-hmm. And some reports of balls rolling on their own near her room suggest she is an active part of the community. Awesome. In a room towards the back of end of one wing, a patient who they've named Dean, but I didn't see anything with, like, if that's actually his name. Right. He's said to be a person who was murdered by two other uh, patients. Patience? Oh, that's so sad. Uh, they had been trying to hang him. Oh, and shit. when it didn't work, the men placed his head under a bed frame and jumped on it until the bed frame touched the floor. Supposedly, he is found in the room where he died. That is so incredibly upsetting. There is the story of a former boxer who they didn't give a name to, at least in any of the sources I found. Mm -hmm. He suffered from head injuries during his career that left him violent and emotionless, which that's something actually that comes a lot up a lot in your, you've got your true crime background. Yeah, football players, man. Head injuries lose like, the capability of feeling a lot of emotions. Yeah, it messes with their frontal lobe. So he attempted to beat down a metal door that isolated him because they had put him in one of the isolation rooms. And he ended up breaking the door off the hinges. Jesus. Can you imagine being on the other side of that door? Like that ter- that poor, terrified orderly. Yeah. So he was leaving visible dents in this oh like, my door, God. this metal door. But when he finally got the door off, he handed it to one of the nurses and then calmly returned to his normal room. So he like just he just doesn't like out. to be. He just doesn't like. To, that's what Evie's like. 
The moment okay. that I shut a door, she's like, let me out or let me in. And then I open the door and she's like, thanks, that's all I wanted. And she walks away in the opposite direction. So your your cat is an evil boxer ghost? Maybe. I go. believe in reincarnation. <laughs> I really hope that's not the case. I don't, I don't think it is. I think she's too, she's too much of a scaredy cat. The rooms used for isolation tend to have violent energies attached to them, which is something we've seen in multiple yeah, medical surprised facilities by that. and prisons. When visitors report being pushed or scratched, as well as disembodied voices saying, get me out of here, it's usually in those rooms. So the, a lot of the physical stuff happens in those rooms. Yeah, think of all the energy that's being expelled in them as they're trapped in there all by themselves. Ugh. Other experiences around the rest of the facility include seeing dark shadows, mm-hmm. objects moving on their own. Classic. Disembodied voices, mm-hmm. cries, banging on the walls, breaking glass with no one near it, among other strange noises. Yeah, built in, built in great haunted house. <laughs> Since 2007, tours have been made available for those who wish to see the asylum firsthand. Mm -hmm. Ghost hunters, um, the building's most frequent visitors, obviously, say they can feel the presence of the hundreds who perished in these shocking conditions. One such was Marissa M. Cascino, who wrote an article in October of 2018 for The Washingtonian after she chose to experience the facility for herself. She chose the overnight hunt. So they do a three-hour hunt... At uh, in like the evening, another like five hour hunt in like during the day or something, yeah. And then they have the overnight, which runs from nine p.m. to five a.m. She said she was joined by a few hardcore like paranormal investigators, yeah. But there were also some other people who were obviously just trying to be spooky. There was an older couple, um, some tween girls and their mom. Aw, what a fun outing! And then uh. This one grandma from Indiana named Julia and her son-in-law, and that's kind of who she hung out with during the investigation. So she was saying this to point out that it's not just ghost hunters who do this. Right. It's a variety of folks. She said, we broke into smaller groups, spending two hours on each of the asylum's four floors before rotating. Our guide told us about some of the hospital's better known spirits, including the little girl named Lily who was born in the asylum, a man named Jesse who died of a heart attack in the bathtub, Civil War soldiers, and a patient who was brutally murdered by his roommates. On each floor, she gave us the lay of the land before turning us loose to explore. The hospital is so vast that it was easy to end up alone despite the dozens of other people wandering around. It was also easy to feel lost amid the maze of hallways and patient rooms covered in peeling paint. Julia and I set up in the room allegedly haunted by a spirit named Jim James. We placed a mag light on the floor and asked Jim to turn it on. The light was Julia's, but I inspected it, and it seemed totally ordinary. A few beats passed, and then it came on by itself. So they were playing the flashlight game. Mm -hmm. I offered Jim a cigarette to turn it back off, and it went dark. I don't smoke, but our guide gave me a couple cigarettes because she said some of the spirits like them. Yep. So, like, they have... The flashlight game I know is controversial, but from what I'm getting from her story... Right. It was very cut and dry. She asked it to be turned on, and then she asked it to be shut off, even making an offering, and it happened. So it's it's a little bit more believable when there. It would be quite the coincidence for these various, like the on and off thing, uh, to happen directly after certain prompts. Exactly. 
In June of this year, Kalani Ghost Hunter, and I hope I'm pronouncing that right, they are a TikTok paranormal investigator. Awesome. They have like almost 2 million followers. It's like 1.9 million followers. Shit. Um, he visited the asylum, and he does live streams at the places that he visits. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's pretty pretty cool. You should check it out. Kalani, K-A-L-A-N-I, Ghost Hunter, all one word. Awesome. On TikTok. Uh, you, should, you should share that with me later. I will. So he did an interview with the local station Channel 12 WBOY after his investigation, and he said, so we had a few weird things happen. On one of my devices that spits out words, the words cut stream came in as I was streaming, which was really weird. We had some pretty good activity in the Civil War section of the building, that's what they call it, with various pieces of equipment going off. At the beginning of the night, it was really active, and then it died out towards the end. I know it sounds weird, but the energy of the Trans-Allegheny is just odd. I think it's because there was so much between all the lobotomies and the treatments they did there. Mm -hmm. There's a weird energy there. You could say it was the lead paint, but I don't think that's all it is. (laughs) I mean, you go into the women's ward and it's just eerie. You can feel it. I had goosebumps last night, which I haven't gotten in a while. All right. Um, my, My one and only concern about that experience is the cut stream. Unless the ghosts are a very... Uh, learned, like they, you take it in. But they might be if they've been doing these consistently since yeah. 2007. That's true. And streaming has been around for a while. Like, yeah, TikTok live stream has, has gotten more popular, but right. people do Facebook streams, People and people talk. People just talk. They wander around and they chat about things. And I think that if a ghost isn't an echo, right, then they're more likely to pick up on what's What's happening happening. around them. Yeah. So this specific location, while it is not the quoted reason behind a season two asylum of American Horror Story, Uh it has a lot of the aspects and they did use a lot of it as inspiration. Yeah, I could see that. It's not the location. Right. But which we covered a while ago. In like the 30s or the 40s uh, episodes. Um. But still, very big inspiration, and we can see why. A lot of people are quick to write these locations off as only being creepy because it's an old hospital and it's still got its stuff in it. But I, I think it's more than that. I, whether you're skeptical or not, we can all agree that the building is a huge reminder that uh, people are terrible. People are terrible, and we need to take better care of other people. Oh, uh, yeah. And mental health is important. Mental health is important. There's no shame in needing mental help. And that's the story of the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. I can't reach the button anymore. Oh. <laughs> and also, I would like to point out, I don't love the idea of uh, calling something a lunatic asylum, but that's legitimately the name. Yeah, I know. I was going to I was gonna mention that, but I, I could definitely... It is not everyone name. changed the name of their asylums exactly. for like political correctness. Sometimes they just kept on going. They might have changed it at some point when it was still in operation. I don't know. I can't imagine that through the 80s and the 90s they kept lunatic asylum in there. Right. But like the people that own it now right. call it that. And so if you want to find it or find information on it, which it's not actually that far away. I think it's 
only a few hours. I couldn't find any. Like, West Virginia. West Virginia, but Columbus, Ohio, it's not all that far away from Columbus, Ohio by like Midwest driving standards, says the girl who just drove 16 hours this weekend. Um, Wait, why, why are we basing it on Columbus, Ohio? How far away is Columbus, Ohio well, from Duluth? I'm only basing it on Columbus, Ohio because Ohio is not that far. You know I love to talk about Ohio. I like to sing about Ohio. And it turns out I cannot name a single like important city in West Virginia, which might be why it hasn't made it on the podcast. Like Virginia, yes. Yeah. Roanoke, Virginia. Like, that's the first one that comes yeah. Comes to my, well, Roanoke. There is a Roanoke. Is Roanoke West Virginia? Because it's not the Roanoke. That's in some other fucking state. <laughs> the Cambridge Sandy School District was terrible with geography. I have no <laughs> idea. <laughs> I don't know. If it's drivable in a day, I'm usually thinking it's fine. Uh, I think it's going to, I think it'd be two days. Anyway, I rambled on there on a skeptic scale of para to normal. Para being five, normal being one. What are you going to give the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum? I'm going to give it a 4.5 just because there's, I'd be surprised if it wasn't haunted. For that reason, I'm going to give it a five. Fuck yeah. Yeah. There's, I have zero doubt in my mind that that space is haunted. Right. Right. Uh. (laughs) Uh. Well, I've been gone for a couple weeks. I'm ready and raring to go. What do you got for me this week? All right, so uh, tonight I'm going to tell you about Hannah Crana, also known as the Wicked Witch of Monroe. Isn't there a very long book with that name? I don't know. Hannah Karenina? Karenina, something like that. Yeah, that's not. This is not that. No, and and the first name wasn't (laughs) Hannah. It was Anna? Anna Karenina. There we go. This is not that. Very, very different. I don't remember what that book is about, um, but I'm guessing it's not about a wicked witch from Connecticut. Probably not. Yeah. Uh, so not much is known about Hannah's early life, including her last name. She doesn't get a last name till she gets married. Uh, but what we do know is that she was born in Connecticut in 1783 which is 120 years after the Connecticut witch trials, which, as I've said in the past, like and in a past episode, lasted nearly 30 years and included 37 suspected cases of witchcraft, which resulted in 11 executions. And while the witchcraft mania of the 1600s, both in Connecticut and Massachusetts, had been, for the most part, over for about 100 years by the time that Hannah was born, some people just got a problem with women. <laughs> yeah, you, you're not wrong. So Hannah lived in Stepney, in the Stepney area in Monroe, Connecticut. She was married to a man named Captain Joseph Hovey, who was likely much older than she was when they got married. Yuck. Uh, and they lived on Craigie Hill. Craigie Hill. They had no children. And no one really knows what their marriage was like, but what we do know is that sometime in the early 1800s, Joseph Hovey mysteriously died. Like, mysteriously in, like, we suspect her, or mysteriously in the way that back then, everything that they didn't fully understand in that moment, which was a lot, is mysterious. 
Well, as the story goes, one night Joseph was out for an evening stroll when he suddenly became disoriented and just fell off a cliff. (laughs) Well, no one in the town of Monroe believed for a second that he just fell. Clearly, his wife had something to do with it. She had bewitched him to walk offeth the ledge and fall to his untimely demise. Well... I walk office things often, and <laughs> let me tell you, no one's pushing me. I just, I'm a klutz. <laughs> Some people just fall office things. That is what happens to me all of the time. All of the time. I fall off the things, and I go boom. <laughs> <laughs> well, after this, the woman was no longer called Hannah Hovey. She became known to the village folk as Hannah Crana. Uh, why Hannah Crana? Uh, probably because it rhymes in some part. Hannah, uh, Crana, Bobana, Banana, Nana, Fofana, Me, My, Momana, Hannah. <laughs> but also possibly because Crana in Scottish means rocky or lofty place, uh, which may reference one of the many pieces of evidence that proves <laughs> that she's a witch. If you can't tell by that tone in her voice, there were a lot of air quotes there. You see, uh, besides having bewitched her husband to unalive himself, she also had a most mysterious rock near her home on Cragley Hill. This rock was flat but had a carved in it, a carving in it that was shaped like a hoof print. Hooves. Hooves. And rumors began to travel that Hannah had been consorting with the devil and that hoof, <laughs> that this hoof print was all the proof that the townsfolk needed. You know, considering that back in the day, people moved by horse a lot, they used hoof prints a lot as like a reference for bad activity. I was like, dude, there were hoof prints everywhere. You had cows, you had horses, you had goats, other things, pigs, pigs have hooves. Man with a goat legs like the devil. But they don't know it was a goat hoof, do they? No, but I think think the issue is that it was directly in uh, like a solid rock. So maybe they thought that he, she, I don't know, maybe he was stomping. Big ass goat. Big ass goat. Tiny ass devil. <laughs> Sorry, I don't know. <laughs> uh, I was thinking back to our old episode name. Uh, badass, bomb ass lady, long ass name. <laughs> um, anyway, so in addition to her rock, uh, she was also kind of a bitch. <laughs> Uh, unlike, I think, most folks accused of witchcraft, she didn't deny being a witch. Uh, she actually used it to her advantage, and she gained the reputation of, um, well, essentially extorting her neighbors for food and services. Oh. Yeah, so one instance of this happened to a neighbor who was well known around the town as being a fabulous baker. One day, she made several pies, and Hannah Crana said, yo, give me a pie, and I'm paraphrasing. I don't know if this is no, that's exactly, exactly how said. she yeah. said it. So she was like, yo, give me a pie. And the neighbor was like, oh, fine. But when HC saw which pie her neighbor had given her, she was passed because it was the smallest pie of the whole bunch. So she demanded a bigger pie. And the neighbor was like, no, I'm already giving you a whole pie for free, Hannah. You don't get the biggest one. 
And then Hannah was like, fine, I curse you. And that from that day on, the neighbor's pies, nor any of her other baked goods, well, they just weren't as good as they used to be. <laughs> maybe, maybe, like, her family and the townsfolk, like, use this as an excuse where they no longer had to lie to her about how good her pies were. <laughs> and they were like, yeah, man, ever since that, like, I just really, she's like, do you want a slice of pie? And they're like, I don't know, man. Ever since you got that curse, those, those pies, they're just, just not, not very they're not good. slapping like they used to. Yeah. So yeah. turns out the pies sucked the whole time. They were just being nice. Yep. Not Hannah, though. Not Hannah. Although she seemed to like the pie, because why would she want a bigger one then? Well, she was hungry. She we'll didn't want to make her own hungry. pie. She didn't want to make her own. And But either way, either way, there's nothing wrong with, uh, with, with being honest. What's the uh, Cordelia quote? Tact is just not being honest or something like that. Giles oh. was like, Cordelia, do you even have tact? And Cordelia was like, tact is just saying things that aren't true. Or I, I think, like that. I think that, yeah. <laughs> tact is just saying things that aren't, or not saying things that are true. HC is just Cordelia. Right. There right. So another instance involves a young man that she caught fishing for trout in a brook on her land. And she was like, nah, you get out of here, boy. And totally cursed him out, literally. And he was said to have never caught another fish again. The lame-ass curses. But that's not to say that she didn't get along with some of her neighbors. After all, her husband's death had left her in poverty, probably why she wanted the bigger pie. Uh, She never remarried. She lived alone atop the crag with her chickens. Also, side note, apparently her house was guarded by snakes. Sweet. Uh, But snake guards or no snake guards, some folks probably took pity on her. And they were nice to her, Mm -hmm. uh, but not everyone else. And for those who made fun of her or dared mock her, like the two men in the oxen-drawn cart full of hay, well, they got what was coming to them. They never carried hay the same again. Miss Crana bewitched those oxen to stop moving and enchanted the wheels to fall off. And uh, that's just what you get. (laughs) So they were driving by in their oxen-drawn cart full of hay, and they were like, Hannah Crana, and all of a sudden the wheels plopped off, and the oxen were like, I'm not going, I'm not going anywhere. You stay here and get your comeuppance. And that was life for Hannah Crana and Monroe. <laughs> she used her witchy reputation to get what she wanted, whether it be pies or revenge, and she lived like this for a good long time. Until one day in 1859, when H.C.'s most beloved rooster by the name of Old Boreas... <laughs> <laughs> he died. <laughs> old Boreas. Poor old, poor old Boreas. Some folks had suspected that the rooster was her familiar, so when she told her neighbor that now she too would die, I bet a lot of folks were like, I knew it. <laughs> she went on to say that when she died, she had very specific instructions on what they were supposed to do. First of all, her coffin was to be carried by hand, not by cart. And second of all, she wanted to not be buried until after sundown. Why? I don't think she gave any specifics. Might have just wanted to be a pill one more time. Anyway, she did indeed die soon after, and unsurprisingly, her neighbors completely ignored her instructions. Oh, yeah. 
They attempted to bring her coffin to the gravesite by wagon since the ground was knee deep with snow, but the coffin just rolled right off of it. So they put it back on the wagon, started moving, and it fell off again. And I don't know how many times it just bloop, slipped right off of that wagon, but eventually they did as she asked and they carried it by hand to the gravesite. And after all the tumbling and picking up and tumbling and picking up and all that jazz, by the time they finally reached the cemetery, it was indeed after sunset. I bet everyone was really ready to put her in the ground. I was hoping that would get a laugh, and it didn't. (laughs) (laughs) No, I was waiting. I was waiting for, like, another thing that went poorly for them. Because you were talking about the snow, so I'm, like, waiting, like, yeah, they were really ready to put her in the ground, and then the ground was frozen. Uh, I I was not, I was trying to not interrupt. (laughs) I wasn't not thinking it was funny. (laughs) When the funeral party returned to Hannah Crana's house, they found it engulfed in flames. Apparently, it had caught on fire shortly after they left, thus sealing her witchy legend. Today, yeah, Miss was caught on fire. Somebody <laughs> set that on fire. <laughs> Today, Miss Cranel, you know what? I bet it was that one neighbor that she got along with. Yep. She's like, let's, you know you what? You need to snoop through her shit. <sighs> one final fuck you to these town folk. Uh, today, Miss Crana lies beneath a gravestone in Gregory's Four Corners Burial Ground on Spring Hill Road in Trumbull, Connecticut, right next to Monroe. According to local legend, at least once a year, a driver passing by Gregory's Four Corners burial ground swerves to avoid a woman in the middle of the road and crashes into the same tombstone, that of Hannah Crana, which the town of Monroe replaces almost annually. However, anyone visiting the cemetery will realize right away that Hannah's tombstone is on top of the hill, overlooking the town. It would be very difficult for a car to accidentally hit it. And there is no historical record of either Trumbull or Monroe ever replacing the stone. But I will say that although her legal name was Hannah Hover, her tombstone says Hannah Crana. Oh, just one last fuck you. (laughs) Fuck you guys. And that is the story of Hannah Crana. Huh. That poor woman. I know. Yeah. I really hope it was her nice neighbor that set that on fire. Yeah. Just like, yeah, you're not going to get to snoop no. through her things. I'm not letting that happen. You no. Know, you guys have done enough to her. Yeah. Fuck um, you guys. Didn't even give her the big pie. You knew she was poor and hungry. Sometimes people just going to be angry. And, you know, even though they described her as essentially being really difficult and kind of a bitch, you know, maybe she was just hangry. Very true. I'm going to give this story two different ratings. All right. I'm going to give it a one for whether or not Hannah was a witch. Okay. I don't think Hannah Crenna was a witch. I think she just spoke her mind and that pissed people off. Yep. But I'm going to give it a three and a half for the possibility that she pops up in the road. (laughs) Okay. Because you know what? I'd be pissed and jumping out in cars too if, like, town folk treated me like that. Right. And and maybe the car doesn't swerve and doesn't hit a gravestone, but that doesn't mean she's not there. Yeah, exactly. That's just like the rest of her life. They were exaggerating her behavior, Mm -hmm. and they were turning her into something bad when really she was just... Cranky. Yeah. Okay. So and I bet her husband was a dick. Like, we don't know what their relationship was like. You know what? Her husband and her could have gotten along great. 
Right. Maybe she was really sad. She wore all black after he died, which was tradition, but also she kept with it. So maybe she was really devastated by this death of her husband. And then everybody's like, well, that shit's suspicious. So uh, so not only are you sad about your husband dying, but also... And everyone's mean to you about everybody's it. Everybody's mean to you about it thinking you did it. Yeah, she's like, I would never... I love Joseph. And then she's in poverty and trying to just live her life. And she's so hungry. And then she's like, you know what? I guess I'll, if they all think I'm a witch anyway, fine. I'll be a witch. Now give me the freaking bigger piece of pie. Exactly. Yep. What rating are you going to give her? I am 100% going to give her a one. Just like you in regards to whether or not I think she was a witch. Um, my guess is that it was like a mind over matter. They, She claimed that she was a witch and then people just got so flustered that all these things happened to them on their own. Um, and then I'm going to give a four. What was what was the other category? Uh, for whether or not she pops out in the road. Oh, fuck yeah. I, I think she, you know, I'll give her a 3.5 for that as well. I do really just think that she was a lady who spoke her mind and ugh, people just can't deal with that. <laughs> I agree. I have a listener share okay um let's see here so our listener randy the same one who requested the story on the bangar fort Mm -hmm. sent this article asking me if i'd seen it okay and i certainly had not seen it so are you guys ready for the article australian man convinced he found a cryptid's feces. <laughs> um, can you really be ready for an article <laughs> called Australian Man Convinced He Found a Cryptid's Feces? <laughs> I mean, what sort of readiness can you really have for that? <laughs> so this specific article I'm reading was written for Exemplar by Diana Logan. It's published on August 8th, 2022. And I swear to God, I thought that Randy was shitting me. When he, (laughs) puns. Accidental ones, though. (laughs) I thought Randy was fucking with me when he said that this article. I was like, you're, no, that's not a real That's not real. That's like an Onion article. But no, it's a real article. So, Diana Logan writes, One of the most popular cryptid types is that of the hairy ape man. These bipedal, often enormous hairy monsters exist in stories from many locales and cultures. In the Americas, the creature is often called a Bigfoot ah, or a Corey. In Australia, the legendary beast is known as the Yowie. The term Yowie was a con- has a controversial origin. Most people think it derives from a variety of aboriginal stories about the creature, similar to the Sasquatch of America. Yep. Others think it's a play on words that English colonizers brought to the continent. Some call it a Yahoo instead, but Yowie is by far the most popular term. A Yahoo, really, guys. Yahoo. Do we not remember that? I thought there was another little Yahoo. No. No? Okay. Continue. Continue. Everybody remember there used to be commercials for Yahoo? That used to be a thing. I used to think that Yahoo wasn't real. Really? Because it was was always used in cartoons and on TV shows. Oh. And then I'm like, well, this must be that. It's like how every... Everything on TV, every phone number starts with 555. I thought that that was... Me hanging out at an inappropriate age at Yahoo chat rooms. 
uh, that I didn't belong in says otherwise. Anyway. <laughs> oh, wait. Okay. I was thinking Yahoo the drink. No, that's Yoohoo. And that is absolutely real. And it does not taste that good. I have. It tastes like super watered down chocolate milk, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. It's just not good. That's Yoohoo. Yoohoo. Yahoo is a mail, like an email yeah, service. Yeah, I know about Yahoo. You've got mail. That's AOL. No. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Back to, the, back to the article. Anyway. So. This Australia man was out in the bush on a trip and went to answer the call of nature in a secluded spot when he discovered that someone or something Mm. else had been there before him and also relieved itself. Okay. This was posted by uh, the, uh, like he posted it on the Bigfoot subreddit. Okay. And the username is Truth and Daisies. I think you can still find it. And the title goes, Found huge turd the size of my leg in a national park. Okay. I realize the title sounds stupid and that I'm messing around. No, all jokes aside, please hear me out. I live in Australia. The largest land animal here are red kangaroos. The national park I was in did not have kangaroos. Even if it did have kangaroos, there was no way a kangaroo was the culprit of this. Anyway... Me and my mother were driving through the mountains in a national park on our way home to my friend's wedding, a long drive away. We had been in the car a while and hadn't stopped for hours, so we decided to pull over and use the toilet en naturel in the bush. I was busting, so when I stopped the car, I jumped out first while Mom minded the car. I ran maybe 10 to 15 meters into the bush from the side of the road. Very thick bush, thick forest everywhere. I found a spot, and as I squatted down, sorry for the details... I lost my balance and put out my hand for balance on what I thought was a small fallen tree or stump or something. But instead, my hand sunk into it and it was warm. Uh, Okay. Obviously, I removed my hand, smelled it, and it stunk like shit. I was disgusted and rubbed it on the ground, but when I actually looked at what it was I had tried to use for support, I realized it was actually a poo. It was huge. It was long and thick as my leg. I thought it was an old fallen small tree. You could see crushed fresh leaves all over it with weird scuff marks everywhere around it, too. There was no way this came from a normal animal. This was most definitely a turd, though, and I couldn't believe it. Whatever it did, it was a monster. Nothing I've ever heard of. I called my mother, and she wasn't far, so she came within moments. I told her to check it out, and she also couldn't believe her eyes. We both just stared at it silently for a few seconds, confused, wondering what the bloody hell left this behind. When both of us heard a branch snap in the silence only meters away from us, followed by two quick and distinct footsteps, then silence again. The bush was too thick to see what it was. Anyway, we were spooked. We felt like something was there, but when we broke the silence, we knew. We didn't have to say anything to each other. We just turned and ran as fast as we could to the car. We didn't even get to we. I slammed down the accelerator and sped out of that area like my life depended on it. We both got a sick feeling and both of us were nearly in tears. That could have been from the poop still on your hand. (laughs) I was thinking maybe he felt sick because he didn't get to go poop. (laughs) This happened roughly 10 years ago. We still talk about it, but I haven't really shared it because, well, you read what I found. Who can blame me? I'm not sharing that within my circle, but I look back and I remember particularly how it was warm out of all things, which meant that whatever did it was close And with the steps and branch, it was probably right next to us, whatever it was. It was in the middle of nowhere and would have taken a picture of it if me and my mom hadn't suddenly gotten spooked. We had no proper explanation of what kind of animal could have done that. There are only koalas in that area, too, not even larger animals. 
To this day, I wonder what kind of animal could have done this and am no closer to a plausible culprit. Does anyone have any idea what to tell me? I, no. No, I have nothing. I got nothing for you, dude. So in the story, he talks about how shocked he was at seeing the poop. Uh, yeah. Uh, he talks about how he has no idea what could have created it. But towards the end of it, like in the comments, like and this is all just being more described in the article. I'll share it on there. Yeah. He's describing like everybody keeps commenting being like, yo, you know, could have could have been a snake. Like apparently there's big giant snakes. Ah, this is why I don't visit Australia. Apparently there's big snakes that could have left a poo that big. But he was like, no, that's definitely not a snake. And to my, he said, my knowledge, snakes are cold-blooded. If I got, like, like saying that the poop wouldn't have been warm because the snakes are cold-blooded, I don't know how logical that is. Anyway, this guy posted it in the Bigfoot subreddit, absolutely uh-huh. convinced that he found a Bigfoot poop. And I felt that that was very appropriate to share with you after the last episode from when I wasn't here. I think that's extremely appropriate. Um, and also very gross. Very gross. Thank you, Randy. Totally reminds me of that scene in Jurassic Park with the sick triceratops. And then she puts on the big gloves and she yep. goes and she's like, what are these these flowers? Are they native to this area? And she's like, oh, they're poisoned. They're from the wrong century. Yeah. Dude, don't feed your dinos poison berries and uh, don't squat in a bush where uh, B- uh, Yowie. Yeah. Out. So. <laughs> oh. Wow. If you have any supernatural articles you'd like to share with us, any stories of your own you'd like to tell, uh, anything at all, really, a suggestion for what you'd like to hear, a correction on something we've said. (laughs) We get so many. (laughs) (laughs) You can do so by contacting us. You can email us directly at leftofskeptic at gmail.com. Or you can visit our website, www.leftofskeptic.com, and click the listener stories link at the top of the page. Or you can click the link tree in our bio. You can choose to remain anonymous or include your name, whatever you're the most comfortable with. We just ask that you please include your pronouns. Yes, please. You can also follow us on social media. We are on TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter, at Left of Skeptic, and, uh, at Left of Skeptic Podcast on Facebook. Well, it is great to be back. This yeah. is new and interesting for me. I'm still getting my bearings at uh, the whole, I'm staring at you face-to-face, not through a computer screen, so that's great. Reunited and, and it feels, feels so good. Because I can't make it on my own. Because my heart is in Ohio. We've had a few episodes. I haven't sung that yet. So yeah. I just needed to throw it in there. I mean, you did mention Ohio. I was waiting this entire time, yep. especially when you went into the whole thing about West Virginia is not that far away from Columbus, Ohio. And I was like, it's not that far like from I, Columbus, Ohio. It's like <laughs> I planned these things or something. <laughs> well, we love you all very much. We appreciate you. We appreciate you. Thank you for joining us. Yes. Happy Spooky Wednesday. Happy Spooky Wednesday. Okay. okay. Bye. Bye. The Left of Skeptic podcast is written and hosted by Kayla Moria and Brittany Lind. This week's episode is edited by me. Brittany Lind. The Left of Skeptic music is by Dave Melling and Emily Havoc, and our artwork is by Al LeBlanc. Okay, bye!